Joe meets Apollyon. going asked Amy coming into the room one Sunday afternoon after finding them getting ready to go out with an air of secrecy which excited her curiosity never mind little girl shouldn't ask questions returned Joe sharply now if there is anything mortifying to our feelings when we are young it is to be told that and to be bidden to run away dear is still more trying to us Amy brilled up at this insult and determined to find out the secret if she teased for an hour Turning to Meg, who never refused her anything very long, she said coaxingly, Do tell me. I shall think you might let me go too, for Betty's fusing over her piano and I haven't got anything to do, and I'm so lonely. I can't, dear, because you aren't invited, began Megan. But Joe broke in impatiently. Now, Meg, be quiet or you will spoil it all. You can't go, Amy, so don't be a baby and whine about it. You are going somewhere with Laurie. I know you are. You were whispering and laughing together on the sofa last night, and you stopped when I came in. Aren't you going with him? Yes, we are. Now, do be still and stop bothering. Amy held her tongue, but used her eyes, and saw Meg's leave of fun into her pocket. I know, I know, you're going to the theater to see the Seven Castles, she cried, adding resultantly. And I shall go, for mother said I might see it, and I've got my rag money, and it was meant not to tell me in time. Just listen to me a minute, and be a good child, said Meg softly. Mother doesn't wish you to go this week, because your eyes are not well enough yet to bear the light of this fairy piece. Next week, you can go with Beth and Hannah, and have a nice time. I don't like that half as well as going with you and Laurie. Please let me. I've been slick with this cold so long. And shut up, I'm dying for some fun. Do Meg? I'll never be so good, pleaded Amy, looking as pathetic as she could. Suppose we take her. I don't believe Mother would mind if we bundle her up well, began Meg. If she goes, I shan't, and I don't. Laurie won't like it, and it will be very rude after he invited us only to go and drag in Amy. I shall think she'd hate to pocket herself where she isn't wanted, said Joe crossly, for she disliked the trouble of oversharing a fidget child when she wanted to enjoy herself. Her tone and manner angered Amy, who began to put her boots on saying in her most aggressive way, I shall go, Meg stays it, I might. And if I pay for myself, Laurie hasn't anything to do with it. You can sit with us, for our seats are reserved, and you mustn't sit alone, so Laurie will give you his place, and that will spoil our pleasure. Or he'll get another seat for you, and that isn't proper when you weren't asked. You shan't steer a step, so you may just stay where you are, Scott with Joe crosser than ever, having just pricked her finger in her hurry. Sitting on the floor with one boot, Amy began to cry, and Meg to reason with her, when Laurie called from below, and the two girls hurried down, leaving their sisters willing, for now and then she forgot her grown-up ways and acted like a spoiled child. Just as the party was setting out, Amy called over the banisters in a threatening tone. You'll be sorry for this, Joe March. See if you ain't. Fiddlesticks, returned Joe, slamming the door. 
they had a charming time, for the seven castles of the Diamond Lake was as brilliant and wonderful as heart could wish. But in spite of the comical red limbs, sparkling elves, and the gorgeous princes and princesses, Joe Pleasure had a drop of bitterness in it. The fairy queen's yellow curls reminded her of Amy, and between the acts she amused herself with wondering what her sister would do to make her sorry for it. She and Amy had many lively skirmishes in the course of their lives, for both had quick tempers and were apt to the violent when fairly roast. Amy teased Joe, and Joe irritated Amy, and semi-occasional explosions occurred, of which both were much ashamed afterwards. Although the oldest, Joe, had the least self-control, and had a hard time trying to curve the fairy's print, which was constantly getting her into trouble, her anger never lasted long, and having humbly confessed her fault, she sincerely repented and tried to do better. Her sisters used to say that they rather liked to get Joe into a fury because she was such an angel. Poor Joe tried desperately to be good, but her bosom enemy was always ready to flame up and defeat her, and it took years of patient effort to subdue it. When they got home, they found Amy reading in the parlor. She assumed an injured air as they came in, never lifted her eyes from her book or asked a single question. Perhaps curiosity might have conquered resentment. If Beth had not been there to inquire and receive a glowing description of the play, on going out to put away her, bats, her best hat, Joe's first look was towards the burrow. For in their last quarrel, Amy had shooted her feelings by turning Joe's top drawer upside down on the floor. Everything was in place, however, and after a hasty glance into her various closets, bags, and boxes, Joe decided that Amy had forgiven and forgotten her wrongs. There, Joe was mistaken, for next day she made a discovery which produced attempts. Meg, Beth, and Amy were sitting together late in the afternoon, when Joe burst into the room, looking excited and demandly, breathlessly. Has anyone taken my book? Meg and Beth say no at once and look surprised. Amy poked the fire and said nothing. Joe saw her color raise and was down upon her in a minute. Amy, you've got it. No, I haven't. You know, where is it then? No, I don't. That's a fib, cried Joe, taking her by the shoulders and looking fierce enough to frighten a much braver child than Amy. It isn't. I haven't got it. I don't know where is it now, and I don't care. You know something about it, and you'd better tell me at once, or I'll make you. And Joe gave her a slight shake. Scold as much as you like. You'll never see your silly old book again, cried Amy, getting excited with her turn. Why not? I burned it up. What? My little book I was so fond of and worked over and meant to finish before father got home? Have you really burned it? said Joe, turning very pale, while her eyes kindly turned black and her hands clutched Amy nervously. Yes, yes I did. I told you you'd make pay for being cross yesterday, and I have so. Amy got no father, for Joe's hot temper mastered her, and she shook Amy till her teeth chattered in the head, crying in passion of grief and anger. You wicked, wicked girl. I'll never congratulate it again, and I'll never forgive you as long as I live. Meg flew to rescue Amy and Beth to pacify Joe, but Joe was quite beside herself. And with a patting box on her sister's ear, 
She rushed out of the room, up to the old sofa in the garret, and finished her fighting alone. The storm cleared up below, for Mrs. March came home, and having heard the story, soon brought to Amy to a sense of the wrong she had done her sister. Joe's book was the pride of her heart, and was regarded by her family as a literary sprout of great promise. It was only half a dozen little fairy tales, but Joe had worked over them patiently, putting her whole heart into the work, hoping to make something good enough to print. She had just copied them with great care and had destroyed the old manuscript so that Amy Bonfire had consumed the loving work of several years. It seemed a small loss to others, but Joe, it wasn't a dreadful calmly, and she felt that it would never be made up to her. Beth mourned as for a depraved kitten, and Meg refused to defend her pet. Mrs. March looked grave and grieved, and Amy felt that no one would love her till she had asked pardon for the act she now regretted more than any of them. When the tea bell rang, Joe appeared, looking so grim and unfortunate that it took all Amy's courage to say meekly, Please forgive me, Joe. I'm very, very sorry. I shall never forgive you, was Joe's stern answer, and from that moment she ignored Amy entirely. No one spoke of the great trouble, not even Mrs. March, for all had learned by experience that Joe was in that mood words were wasted, and the wisest curse was to wait till some little accident, or her own generous nature softened Joe's resentment and healed the breach. It was not a happy evening, for though they sued as usual, while their mother read loud from Bremer, Scott, or Edward, something that was wanting, and the sweet home peace was disturbed. They felt this most when singing time came, for Beth could only play, Joe stood dumb as a stone, and Amy broke down, so Meg and mother sang alone. But in spite of their efforts to be a cheery as larks, their flute-like voices did not seem to chord as well as usual, and felt out of tune. As Joe received her good night kiss, Mrs. March whispered gently, My dear, don't let the sun go down upon your anger. Forgive each other, help each other, and begin again tomorrow. Joe wanted to lay her head down on that motherly blossom and cry her grief and anger all away, but tears were unmanly weakness, and she felt so deeply injured that she really couldn't quite forgive yet. So she went hard, shook her head, and said gruffly because Amy was listening. It wasn't a bumming, it wasn't a manual thing, and she doesn't deserve my forgiveness. With that, she marched off to bed, and there was no merry or confidential gossip that night. Amy was much offended that her overtures pleas had been repulsed, and began to wish she had not humbled herself, to feel more injured than ever, and to plume herself on her superior virtue in a way which was particularly exasperating. Joe still looked like a thundercloud, and nothing went well all day. It was bitter cold in the morning. She dropped her precious turnover in the gutter. Aunt March had an attack of the fidgets. Meg was sensitive. Beth would look grieved and wistful when she got home. And Amy kept making remarks about people who were always talking about being good and yet wouldn't even try when other people set them a virtuous example. Everybody is so hateful. I lost glory to go skating. He is always kind and jolly, and will put me to rights, I know, said Joe to herself, and off she went.
Amy heard the clash gates and looked out with an impatient exclamation. There, she promised I shall go next time, for this is the last I, sh I shall have. But it's not used to ask such a crosspatch to take me. Don't say that. You were very naughty. And it's hard to forgive the loss of her precious little book. But I think she might do it now. And I guess she will, if you try her at the right minute, said Meg. Go after them. Don't say anything till Joe has gotten good nature with Larry. That take a quiet minute and just kiss her or do something kind. And I'm sure she'll be friends again with all her hearts. I'll try, said Amy, for the advice suited her. And often flurried to get ready. She ran after her friends who were just disappearing over the hill. It was not far from the river, but both were ready before Amy reached them. Joe saw her coming and turned her back. Laurie did not see, for he was carefully skating along the shore, sounding the ice, for a warm spell had preceded the cold snap. I go on to the first bend and see if there is all right before we begin to race, Amy heard him say as he shut away, looking like a young Russian in his fur trimmed coat and cap. Joe heard Amy panting after her run, stamping her feet and blowing on her fingers as she tried to put her skates on, but Joe never turned and went slowly zigzagging down the river, taking a bitter and happy sort of satisfaction in her sister's troubles. She had cherished her anger till it grew strong and took possession of her, as evil thoughts and feelings always do on this cast out at once. As Larry turned the bend, he shouted back, Keep near the shore! It isn't safe in the middle! Joe heard, but Amy was struggling to her feet and did not catch word. Joe glanced over her shoulder, and her little demon she was harboring said in her ear, No matter whether she heard or not, let her take care of herself. Laurie had vanished around the bend. Joe was just at the turn, and Amy far behind, striking out towards the smaller ice in the middle of the river. For a minute, Joe stood still with a strange feeling in her heart. Then she resolved to go on, but something held and turned her around, just in time to see Amy throw up her hands and go down with a sudden crash of red ice. The splash threw up her hands and go down with a sudden crash of red ice. She tried to call Laurie, but her voice was gone. She tried to rush forward, but her feet seemed to have no strength in them. And for a second, she could only stand motionless, staring with a terror-stricken face at the little blue hood above the blacklist, staring with water. Something rushed swiftly by her, and Laurie's voice cried out, Bring a rail, quick, quick. How she did it, she never knew. But for the next few minutes, she worked as if it possessed, blindly obeying Laurie, who was quite self-possessed and lying flat, held Amy up by his arms and a hockey stick, with Joe drag a rail from the fence, and together they got the child out, more frightened than hurt. Now then, we must walk her home as fast as we can, pile our things on her, while I get off this confounded skates, cried Laurie, grabbing his coat around Amy and tugging away at the straps which never seemed to intricate before. Shivering, dripping and crying, they got Amy home, and after an exciting time of it, she fell asleep, rolled in blankets before a hot fire. During the bus tile, Joe had scarcely spoken, spoken but flown out, looking pale and wild with her things half off, 
her dress torn and her hands cut and bruised by ice and rails and refractory brookles. When Amy was comfortable asleep, the house quiet and Mistress March sitting by the bed, she called Joe to her and began to bind up the hurt hands. Are you sure she's safe? whispered Joe, looking remorseful at the golden head which might have been swept away from her side forever under the treacherous eyes. Quite safe, dear. She's not hurt and won't even take cold, I think. You were so sensible on covering and getting her home quickly, replied her mother carefully. Laurie did it all. I only let her go, mother. If she shall die, it will be my fault. And Joe dropped down beside the bed in a passion of penitent tears, telling all that happened bitterly, condemning and hardness of heart. And summing out her gratitude for being spared the heavenly punishment which might have come upon her. It's my dreadful temper. I try to cure it. I think I have. And then it breaks out worse than ever. Oh, mother, what shall I do? What shall I do? Cried poor Joe in despair. Watch and pray, dear. Never get tired of anything. And never think it's impossible to conquer your fault. Said Miss March, drawing the blows he had to her shoulder and kissing the wet cheek so tenderly that Joe cried harder than ever. You don't know you can. Guess how bad it is. It seems as it feels I could do anything when I'm in a passion. I get so savage. I could hurt anyone and enjoy it. I'm afraid I shall and do something dreadful someday and spoil my life and make everybody hate me. Oh, mother, please help me. Do help me. I will, my child. I will. I don't cry so bitterly, but remember this day and resolve with all your soul that you will never know another like it. Joe, dear, we'll have our temptations, some fear greater than yours, and it often takes us all of our lives to conquer them. You think your temper is the worst in the world, but mine used to be just like it. Yours, mother? Why are you never angry? And for the moment, Joe forgot Vermeer's enterprise. I've been trying to cure it for 40 years and have only succeeded in controlling it. I am angry nearly every day of my life, Joe, but I have learned not to show it, and I still hope to learn not to feel it, though it may take me another 40 years to do so. The patience and the humility of the face she loved so well was a better lesson to Joe than the wisest lecture, she the sharpest reproof. She felt comforted at once by the sympathy and confidence given to her. The knowledge that her mother had a fault like hers and tried to mend it made her own easier to bear and strengthened her resolution to cure it. Through forty years seemed rather a long time to watch and pray to a girl of fifteen. Mother, are you angry when you fold your lips tight together and go out the room sometimes when Aunt March scolds or people worry you? asked Joe, feeling nearer and dearer to her mother than ever before. Yes. I've learned to check the hasty words that bite my lips. When I felt that mean to break out against my will, I'd just go away for a minute and give myself a little shake for being so weak and wicked, answered Miss March, with a sigh and a smile. And she smothered and fastened up Joe's dissolved hair. How did you learn to keep it still? That is what troubles me, for the sharp words fly out before I know that I'm about, and I'm the more I say worse. I get it. Till it's pleasure to hurt people's feelings and say dreadful things. Tell me how you do it, Marmy, dear. My God, Mother used to help me. As you do us, interrupted Joe with a grateful kiss.
But I lost her when I was a little older than you are, and for years had to struggle on alone, for I was too proud to confess my weakness to anyone else. I had a hard time, Joe, and she has good many bitter tears for my failures, for in spite of my efforts, I never seemed to get on. Then your father came, and I was so happy that I found it easy to be good. But by and by, when I had four little daughters around me and were poor, then the total trouble began again, for I am not patient by nature. And it tried me very much to see children wanting anything. Poor mother, what helped you then? Your father, Joe. He never loses patience, never doubts or complains, but always hopes and works and waits so cheerfully that one is ashamed to do otherwise before him. He helped and comforted me and showed me that I must try to practice all the virtues I will have my little girls possess, for, was, for I was their example. It was easier to try for our sakes than for my own. I started on surprised look from one of you when I spoke sharply, rebuked me more than any words could have done, and the love, respect, and confidence of my children was the sweetest reward I could receive for my efforts to be the woman I will have them copy. Oh, mother, I'm feeling ever half as good as you. I shall be satisfied, cried Joe, much touch. I hope you will be a great deal better, dear, but you must keep watch over your blossom enemy, as father calls it, or it may sadden, if not spoil your life. You've had a, had a warning, remember it, and try with your heart and soul to master this quick temper before it brings you greater sorrow and greater than you have known today. I'll try, mother, I truly will, but you must help me, remind me, and keep me from flying out. I used to see father sometimes put his finger on his lips and look at you with a very kind but sober face, and you always folded your lips tight or went away. Was he reminding you then? Asked Joe softly. Yes, I asked him to help me so, and he never forgot it, but saved me from many sharp words by the little gesture and kind look. Joe saw that her mother's eyes fled up, her lips trembled as she spoke, and fearing that she had said too much, she whispered anxiously, Was it wrong to watch you and to speak of it? I didn't mean to be rude, but it's so comfortable to say all I think to you and feel so safe and happy here. My Joe, you may say anything to your mother, for it's my greatest happiness and pride to feel that my girls confide in me and know how much I love them. I thought I grieved you. No, dear, but speaking of father reminds me of how much I miss him, how much I owe him, and how faithfully I should watch and work to keep his little daughter safe and good for him. Yet, you told him to go, mother, and didn't cry when he went and never complained now or seem as if you needed to any help, said Joe, wondering. I gave my best to the country I love. I kept my tears till was gone. Why should I complain when we both have merely done our duty and will surely be the happier for it in the end? If I don't seem to need help, it is because I have a better friend ever than father to comfort and surprise me. My child, the troubles and temptations of your life are beginning and may be many, but you can overcome and outlive them all if you learn to feel the strength and tenderness of your heavenly father as you do of your earthly one. The mother you love and trust him, the nearer you will feel to him, 
and the less you will depend on human power and wisdom. His love and care never tire or change, can never be taken from you, but may become the source of lifelong peace, happiness, and strength. Believe this hurriedly, and go to God with all your little cares, and hope, and sins, and sorrows, and freely and confidently as you came to your mother. Joe's only answer was to hold her mother's clothes, and in the silence which followed the sincerest prayers she had ever prayed led her heart without words, for in that yet happy hour she had learned not only bitterness, remorse, and despair, but the sweetness of self-denial and self-control and lived by her mother's hand. She had drawn nearer to the friend who always welcomes every child with a love stronger than any father, tender that of any mother. Amy stirred and sighted in her sleep, and as if eager to begin at once to mend her fault, Joe looked up with an expression of her face which it had never worn before. I let the sun go down on my anger. I will forgive her, and today, if I hadn't been for Laurie, it might have been too late. How could I be so weak? said Joe, half around, half aloud, as she learned over her sister, softly stroking the wet hairs scattered in the pillow. As if she heard, Amy opened her eyes and held out her arms with a smile that went straight to Joe's heart. Neither said a word, but they hugged one another close, in spite of the blankets, and everything was forgiven and forgotten in one hearty kiss.